Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail, your, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was, called, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us through it? Help us to see Christ magnified in this text, in our lives, and in this world. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, every single person in the world is presently living out their theology. Everyone. Whatever it is, people are living out what they believe. All people, you could say, live and move and have their being based upon what they ultimately believe to be true about life and meaning and purpose and God or no God as it is for some, which would mean that their theology is atheistic. It's, they don't believe in God, but they're living out of that truth. And when you live in a secular society, like we do, where in many ways our culture has sought to push God to the very periphery of life, this is the world we live in. When you, when you live in a culture that seeks to push God to the periphery of life and, and maybe would say something like, well, it's kind of a private belief thing that you have if you need it. Likely you've experienced it where at times people have sought to just push God out of the picture altogether. That, that is a secular view of life. And in that view of life, it is entirely normal to frame your whole existence within a natural rather than a supernatural order. All horizontal, nothing vertical. All natural, not supernatural. And here's what I mean. In a secular view of the world, all meaning, all significance, and all purpose in life and relationships and everything is then found in the here and now moments. There's nothing transcendent. It's all just right here in what's in front of you. Okay, that is a self-sufficient, naturalistic view of the world that would say we no longer need God to make sense of our existence. This is what a philosopher named Charles Taylor called the imminent frame, living in the imminent frame. That's for me two or three other people who think that's cool. You don't need to know about the imminent frame, you just need to know what the imminent frame means. The imminent frame means that you don't need God to define anything in your life. All meaning is developed by us 
and without reference to God. Okay, now if you're not a follower of Jesus, first of all, welcome. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, what I just said I think will resonate with you is basically true. You don't really need God to understand your existence. You have everything that you need here horizontally to be able to have a life of meaning and purpose. Maybe you're here because you, you've been told that, but you're not sure that's true. But I think this is basically the secular view of the world that we live in. Now, as it relates to the text today, this is how you get into a world where horizontal social status markers become the identifying feature of the value and worth of a human being. Let me say it again. This is how you get to a world. The secular view of the world is how you get to the view where horizontal social status markers are what really matter and become the identifying feature of worth and value of a human being. It's not defined vertically. It's only defined horizontally. They're social status markers that become more significant than anything else. Okay. Now, apart from some kind of life-altering conversion of worldview, there's no way to break free of that way of thinking. Think of it like this. So you got a train track, you set it up in your living room floor. When I was a kid, I had a train track. You set it up and it's in a loop because I, I wasn't cool enough to have like the one that went around anywhere else. I just had the loop. I had the basic set. Our world and our worldview is the basic set. It's just a train, and you're on the tracks, just going around and around and around, and you are just kind of captivated by the worldly way of thinking about everything. It's all horizontal, not vertical. It's all natural, not supernatural. It's all defined by worth and value just on a horizontal level. It's not really about what God says or has any impact on your life. It's just a loop that you can't break out of. And apart from some kind of powerful conversion, I don't think you can break out of that loop. So what happens is you need to have the switch on that set of tracks pulled so that you can break off into a different direction and begin to think differently about your existence as a human being. But you need something to happen. Someone needs to flip the switch so that the tracks open up and you're not stuck in the same loop anymore, but you can now head off and begin to think differently. The switch of the tracks that breaks you free of the normal ways of thinking, I'm going to argue from this text, is the call of God in Christ. It's a call to conversion to Christ. It is seeing the world from a completely different perspective. It's the realization of who God is and what he has done for you in Christ by the Holy Spirit. See, conversion to Christ breaks you free of what Taylor called the imminent frame, but that secular view of the world where it's all just horizontal and all the value and identity of, of, of who you are as a human being is just all horizontal, social status marker kind of stuff. Conversion to Christ breaks you free of that and allows you to understand who you are based upon who God says you are in Christ. Okay? You are no longer ruled by your social status as compared to other people. It's a completely transformed way of thinking. Okay? And we have that in the gospel. This is ours if we will take hold of it. So today we're looking at how our identity is in Christ, not our social status. And I share all of that, which I've just shared, 
to say, you have been formed in a particular kind of view of the world. And though you be a Christian, some of it might be lingering, like it was for the Corinthians. Our identity is in who God says we are in Christ, not our social status. And what I mean is the most important indicator of your value and the most defining truth of who you really are is your relationship to God. Okay, we're going to look at one call, two examples, and one goal. One call, two examples, one goal. You okay? All right. Okay, some of you may have noticed because you're really, really smart and you're going to send me an email about this later, so I might as well say something right now. Why did we skip two kind of chunks of chapter seven and jump into chapter seven in the middle? Didn't we just finish up chapter six last week? Yes, you're very astute observers. Others of you had no idea. Mm. (laughs) The next three weeks, we're going to look at relational social status markers. We're going to talk about marriage and sex. We're going to talk about marriage and divorce. And we're going to talk about singleness over the next three weeks. And I think this text really helps to build a framework of thinking as we look at those social status markers of relationships. And that's why we skipped a couple of sections and we're going to go back to the very beginning of chapter 7 here next Sunday. Marriage and sexuality, we're going to talk about our identity in Christ and how that informs our marriages. The next week we're going to look at marriage and divorce, how our identity is in Christ and how that informs how we're supposed to stay married. And we're going to look third week um, after this at singleness how our, our identity is in Christ, not in our relational or social standing. Okay, so that's, that's where we're going to go. Um, the point that we're looking at, though, through all four of these weeks, really, is that being married or being single um, does not make you more or less spiritual. This is saying that you cannot allow a relational social status to define somebody's worth or value in this world. So that's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks, and that's why we're in this text rather than starting out. Okay, one call. That was a very long intro, and you hung with me, and I love you very much for it. Okay, one call. Let's look at the text. It's always a good idea. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And when you're living on that loop of secular society that I talked about, and when you know that you need to break free of it because you're just going around and around and around, when you're circling it and you're being defined by the social status of the situation that you find yourself in, what you need, again, is that switch that pulls you out of the loop and allows you to head a different direction and to understand that there's a different way to be human. This is actually a radical idea. It draws you out of being merely defined by horizontal status comparisons and it elevates you to consider who God says you are in Christ. I'm belaboring this because if you get this, it'll change the way you look at the whole world. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 9, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're talking about that same calling here in chapter 7. It's the call to salvation in Christ. It's the call into relationship with God by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, when you come to Christ, when you answer that call, when you are saved, I don't care how you want to talk about it, when you're converted to Christianity, you found yourself in a particular social situation and status in life. You're rich, you're poor, you're male, you're female, you're employed, you're unemployed, you're married, you're single. I don't know what social status you found yourself in in life, but your conversion to Christ did not rip you out of that social situation. So when I came to Christ, I was a single 19-year-old. And then I came to Christ and I was a single 19-year-old. Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't change the social status that everybody else defines you by, but it changes everything about the way you view the world. When you come to Christ, when you answer that call, what it means is that you are not primarily defined by that social situation any longer. When you come to Christ, when you answer the call, it means you are not primarily defined by that social situation anymore. How? Okay, toward the end of the text, which we're going to work toward, verse 23, it says you were bought with a price. Your call to Christ was very costly. Your worth, therefore, can no longer be defined by your social status because you were bought with a price. There was a high price paid so that you could hear the call to follow Jesus. So when Jesus was referring to himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Paul the Apostle, who wrote 1 Corinthians, was writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, this is what he said. He said in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, God has called you to himself. He has called you to now find your identity in Christ. He has called you out of slavery to sin and to surrender to the will of God. But you were bought with a price. The call of God, right? The call of salvation is a free gift to you by grace through faith in Christ. But that free gift had a very high price. Jesus' death in your place and for your sin was the ransom price for your freedom from slavery to sin. So please hear me when I say this. The price of your salvation was far too high to keep letting social status be what consumes you and validates you and gives your life meaning. Where you live, what you drive, where you work, your relational social status. You come from this country, that country, this ethnic minority or this ethnic majority. It doesn't matter anymore. Not as a primary identifying feature. The cost of your salvation is too high to elevate any of those things to that place of primacy. Find your identity in Christ. It doesn't do away with all those things. It just allows you to have a new way of understanding what it means to be human. One call with two examples. There's two examples in the text as Paul's trying to explain this to the church of God in Corinth. Two examples, we're talking about the call of God, the call to salvation in Christ, the call to come into relationship with God by the Spirit. See, the argument of the text is that your life 
is far too valuable and the cost of your salvation far too high to continue to look at cultural social markers to validate your worth. How many followers you have on social media, how beautiful you are, how not beautiful you are, how fit you are, how not fit you are, how rich you are, how not rich you are. You pick the social status marker and I'll tell you it is not worth anything compared to Christ. Don't let those things shape you. Education, intelligence, lack of education. Pick them. They all pale in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's argument in the text is that your identity is in Christ, not your social status. Here's two examples he gives to explain. Circumcision and slavery. You woke up thinking about both of them today, so we need to address it. Look at the text. Verse 18. Was anyone at that time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at that time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Okay. In some ways, verse 20 is actually the key to the whole text. It's the center between the two examples. It's a restatement of what he says in the first verse of the text, and it's a kind of a foreshadow to what he's going to say in the last verse of the text that we're looking at here. It's right square in the center. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Okay, his point? It's relationship with God that establishes the spiritual status of Christians, not some kind of social status marker like circumcision. Okay? We're talking about circumcision and removing the marks of circumcision. What does that mean? Okay, it means I wish I was not the one teaching this text. That's the first thing that it means. Why did I not assign this to Sam? That's all I'm trying to think this week in my prep. You know, Brant, who's the lead pastor of the church in Kitsilano, got one of our church planning apprentices to come this week. Brant's looking like a mad genius at the moment. That's, that's what I'm thinking as I'm prepping this sermon. Circumcision versus removing the marks of circumcision. All right, let's just... You're grown-ups, you'll be okay. <laughs> circumcision involves the removal of the foreskin from the penis. I never thought I'd say that in a sermon, <laughs> but I want to be clear. Removing the marks of circumcision undoes that. It is drawing the foreskin over the tip of the penis once again. That is what we're talking about. Okay? The giggles, I love it. You must have been fun in grade eight. We're talking about circumcision and removing the marks of circumcision. Circumcision removed the foreskin of the penis. Removing the marks of circumcision undoes that procedure. Why would anyone do that? Well, you've got to think about the world that Paul was living in and the people he is writing to. For men in Corinth, there were two primary places where relationships were built, where business was done, and where politics were discussed. In the gym and in the bathhouse. Now, when you go to the gym, you wear your workout clothes. Sometimes they're nicer than the clothes you wear to work. Men in Corinth went to the gym naked. When you want to negotiate a business deal, you book a lunch 
at a nice restaurant with a quiet table and you put on business clothes or because you're a business person in Vancouver, you wear your nicest t-shirt. I'm not sure which way it goes for you. We're very casual here. Men in Corinth met in bathhouses and went naked. Okay, Jewish men were circumcised and Jewish men therefore had limited opportunities in business because of their obvious ethnic and religious background. So the temptation for them was to remove the mark of circumcision so they would be more accepted in Corinthian culture. Greek men were uncircumcised, and you got to think about that in a religious world. They could be considered then unspiritual pagans who weren't really that committed to the religious community, so the temptation for them was to get circumcised so that they could be more easily accepted in their religious world. To all of them, Paul the Apostle says, verse 19, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Okay, so hear me. If you are in bondage to religion, and I mean religion in the worst use of that term. I mean it in the sense where humanity tries to claw their way up to God in their own strength, where you try to prove yourself to God, where you try to prove yourself to other religious people that you are good enough, where you try to make yourself good enough to be accepted by a holy God. And you think that getting circumcised is really gonna show that commitment. I'm saying to you, if you are in bondage to religion, you might consider getting circumcised to prove to others how spiritual you really are. If you're in bondage to culture, you might consider trying to remove the marks of your circumcision to prove how free you really are. And Paul says, your identity is, not in, your identity is in Christ, not social status markers. The point Paul's making is if that's you and you think your spiritual status comes down to some kind of status marker. Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, some sort of, sort of human-centered status marker, that that really tells you your identity and your worth and your value before God. He says, you underestimate what God has done for you in Christ. If you're in bondage to culture and you were, you were raised a Jewish man who was circumcised, your bondage to cultural acceptance may tempt you to remove the marks of circumcision. Again, you are underestimating what God has done for you in Christ. Here's the point. If you think too little of Jesus' work in your place, and you think too highly of the opinions of other people, you will always be tempted to present a different version of yourself to the people you want to impress. Let me say it again. If you think too little of Jesus' work and you think too highly of the opinion of others, you will always be tempted to present a different version of yourself to the people you are looking to impress. So what's your temptation? Could be either and it could be both. You want to appear more devoted and spiritual than you really are. So when you show up to your community group, you never are having a bad day. You never confess your sin. Why would you confess your sin? You're doing great. Big smile, put on the mask, everything's great. Oh, just praise God, everything's awesome. In my life, 
11 out of 10 every day. Praise God. Oh, you're having a bad day? Let me pray for you. You bring out all the big words to sound super spiritual because you want to impress people who are spiritual. You will accommodate what you think are their desires for your acceptance. Maybe it's, it's about fitting in where it can advance your career. You want to be accepted in some kind of upwardly mobile social circle, so you go to a party that you get invited to and you, you compromise your integrity and your character at a party so that people will know you're cool. You're living into a culturally acceptable identity while you're hiding your identity in Christ because you think it might help you get ahead. In business, maybe it's overcharging a client, hiding some extra profit in that bid that you put together on that new project that your boss handed directly to you and said, I want you to handle this. And you pad some extra profit in there so that you can show your boss you're a team player. You can trust me. Character's out the window, but look, the bottom line is what we're about, right, boss? If you're in bondage to religion, upward mobility looks like doing whatever it takes to look more spiritual so you can impress those who are looking for those certain marks. But if you're in bondage to culture, upward mobility looks like doing whatever it takes to fit in at the right meetings and sit at the right tables and be alongside those who can advance your social standing. But if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know that your identity is in Christ, not your social status. So you're free to let all of that noise just dissipate. Your identity's in him. None of that other stuff. If all you do is look horizontally for the approval of others, you are trapped in the imminent frame. You are trapped in thinking in a secular, worldly way. Your world is getting smaller and smaller. You've pushed God to the periphery of your life, just like our culture, and now you're actually in the loop and you're just going around and around and around, not considering anything vertical, only looking at things that are horizontal. You need to have the switch flipped so that you can break out of that trap. You're in bondage to social status as compared to other people. It's the realization of who God is that'll break you out of that. And it's the realization of who he says you are in Christ. Christ said you don't have to live to please all of the people and all the worldviews around you. You You've already pleased God in Christ. Trust him. In the end, it'll work out. Now, as we are going to see in the coming weeks, one of the things the Corinthians were looking to to, to derive some of this kind of sense of status, one of those things was marriage and the way they conducted themselves in marriage. We're going to spend some time looking at this. But Paul's big point is that your relationship status does not dictate your spirituality. Marriage is not better than singleness, and singleness is not better than marriage. Your identity is in Christ, not your social or relational status. That's where this text comes from, right out of the middle of a whole bunch of conversation about our relationships. Okay, second example. First one, circumcision. Praise God, that's behind us. Second example, slavery. Oh, that doesn't sound easy either. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. We're talking about slavery, so just feel the weight of that for a second. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? That's slave. It's a variation of, 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 of 
modern slavery at that point, not modern slavery as we would understand it. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Okay. Before we go any further, we need to understand that verse 17, which says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Both of those verses have been used in the past by slave owners to justify keeping their slaves as slaves. I reject that understanding of this text in Jesus' name. That is a misuse of scripture. They argued that this was their condition and so that this is their, where they should remain. Now, I hope you see that Paul's point in this text is not legitimizing the slave trade. People have used and abused scripture for all kinds of things. That doesn't mean we have to follow suit. That is not what this text is saying. Okay, Paul's point is that they would know that the gospel frees them to serve Christ in any circumstance they find themselves. So however you're living when you come to Christ, you can serve God like that, providing it's not something that's inherently sinful as a job or whatever you would look at. You can continue to serve God in that way. So were you a bondservant when called? Or were you free when you were called? His point is it, it doesn't really matter. Why? Remember, Paul says for all of us, free and slave, circumcised, uncircumcised, married, single, we've all been bought by a new master. So now it's true that there is a new reality that is greater than the condition of your life. Look at verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Okay. In Christ, if you are a slave to an earthly master, he is saying you are still free in the Lord. In Christ, even if you are free before all earthly masters, free from all earthly masters, you are a slave to Christ. Your identity is in Christ, not your social status. We see this throughout the entire New Testament in the way that Paul writes about slavery. There's slaves who are serving in high levels of church, leadership and stuff like that. They're not looked down upon in the church because of their social status, because their identity is in Christ. Slaves were people of low estate in Corinth. They, they may actually have been respected in some ways, and, and in other ways, they may have even been governing important affairs of the day. But they had a master, and so they were seen in that light. So on one hand, he says, if you are in Christ, don't let anyone look down on you. You've been ransomed, and you've been freed where it really matters. You don't have to change your social status to be accepted by God or to be accepted by God's people, the church. He says, if you can gain your freedom, you should go for it. But if not, that's really okay. The most important status marker is no longer your earthly master, but the truth that you are chosen and called and saved and loved by your new master, Christ. 
And then on the other hand, he says in verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. There was a real temptation in a place like Corinth to sell yourself into slavery to a person of high social standing so that you could be part of that influential community of people. Selling yourself into slavery meant you had a place to live, three squares a day, and sometimes it was an upwardly mobile act. You could actually, over time, elevate yourself because you're at the right hand of somebody powerful. So for a person of low social standing, it could be a pathway to upward mobility, to boosting your social status. And I want to be clear, Paul is saying, don't do that. That's not your goal. Your identity is in Christ, not your social standing. If you're a slave, you can serve God. You can be free. That's great. If you're free, you can serve God. But don't enslave yourself to someone for a social status boost. You've already got everything you need in Christ. If you're keeping score with the right scorecard, you don't need the social status boost that selling yourself into slavery is going to bring. If you're keeping score with a secular scorecard, that might seem tempting and make a ton of sense to you. You were bought with a price. Your life is not your own. Stop thinking like everyone around you trying to scramble to the top of the social status pile, thinking that that's going to solve all of your problems. Don't get trapped on the secular loop chasing worldly status. If you value what the world values, you will end up in bondage to the world. But if you understand your status in Christ, you will remain free. That is good news. Jesus talked about this, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? We're not playing games here. Who do you serve? There's one call, there's two examples, and third, there's one goal, one goal. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. If you're keeping track, that's three times in this text he said the same thing. We should listen. In whatever condition each was called, There, let him remain with God. Okay, the whole point of this whole section is really twofold. First, understanding that trying to change your status to be accepted in the world will never satisfy you because your identity as a Christian is found in Christ, not your social status. Don't submit yourself to the loop. The second thing he's trying to get at is he's saying that trying to change your status to be accepted by God is not necessary. You don't need to change your social status so that God will accept you. Not by the way that we see it in this text. Because you've been called. You've been bought. 
In Christ, you've been supremely loved in a way that transcends all other defining features of any kind of worldly status that you could ever hang on to. No, no, you don't need to change your worldly status to become acceptable to God. Once you have become accepted and loved and embraced by God, it might change everything to do with the way you live. But you don't need to do that to be accepted. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. The things that we allow to define us on horizontal, horizontal terms are not things that prohibit God from loving you. Are you rich? Are you poor? Are you married? Are you single? Are you slave? Are you free? Are you religious or irreligious? Are you circumcised or uncircumcised? You don't need to change that stuff so that God will love you. I think it's important you hear that today. Some of you aren't followers of Jesus. And you're looking around the room thinking, what do I need to do to get in on this? Oh, man. Just let him love you. I mean, when you... When you have that switch flipped and you break out of that little secular trap of thinking that you're just going around and around and around, it'll change the way you see the whole world. It'll change all your ethics. It'll change the way that you live. It'll change the way that you commit yourself to people. It'll change the way that you love your neighbors. It'll change the way you do your job. It'll change the way that you participate in every facet of life. I'm not trying to undersell the importance of that. What I'm telling you is, you don't need to change your status so that God will love you. When God loves you, it may transform your whole life. Now, the Corinthians were not the only folks that needed to be told this or who had questions about this. Paul summed it up to the Galatians like this in chapter 3, verse 28. He said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he summed it up to the Colossians like this. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Your identity as a Christian is found in Christ, not your social status. So what do we do about it? Verse 24. I love this. Remain with God. Remain with God. Dwell with him, abide with him, make your home in him. You are with him and he is with you. Over the next three weeks, we're going to see that there are implications for understanding that as we relate to other people in our marriages and in our congregation, in our community. And I want to say that Christians, therefore, because God is with us and we are with him, don't live as single, married, or abandoned. They don't live that way alone. You're not alone when you're with him. God is at your side. So you might be single, but you're not alone. You might be in a loveless marriage, which I think is the loneliest place to be, but you're not alone. You might have been abandoned, and you might be divorced. You might be a widow, but you are not alone. Your life is defined by the call of God to come into relationship with him, to remain with him, knowing that you can successfully and faithfully serve God in whatever situation you find yourself in.
remain with him, Christ City.